Hi, and welcome to Beyond Parking, a podcast brought to you by the British Parking Association. My name's Joey, and I'm here today with Julian, and we both work in the technology, innovation and research team. Hi, Julian. Welcome back to the second episode of Beyond Parking. It's nice to have you back on the show. How have you been? I've been great, yeah. And uh, yes, as you say, the second episode of this new series. And you, you, you basically kicked me off the last one, didn't you? Yeah. Well, you know, it was, you were busy and it was a women in parking one. There were already Absolutely. many voices, so I thought, just yeah. do that one myself. Go and have a listen, folks, if you haven't. What are you, I mean, we're coming up to Christmas holidays. What mm-hmm. are your plans, Julian? Obviously, we've just all, I know you're in tier four. I am in tier four. So my plans have been slightly curtailed. I was going to see my dear old mum in Lyme Regis. And now, thanks to the uh, you know the FaceTime and Zoom and everything we've been using, I can still see her with my little one, but it won't be quite the same. But the main thing is we're all staying safe and keeping our loved ones safe, and that's what we're going to do, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm doing a similar thing where I am as well. So in the future, I'd possibly be going down to see my mum in Dorset in an automated vehicle or a, a pod even. And that's what we're talking about today, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. We're going to be speaking to Alex Glassbrook, who is a leading international expert in autonomous vehicles. He's an author, he's a barrister, and he's got a lot to say about what's with us and what's coming around the corner in terms of automated vehicles. See what I did there? Yes, very clever, Julian, very clever. Um, and my favourite bit about this interview is the fact that we managed to go from automated vehicles to horses in the space of about 30 minutes, um, which is fascinating. But I think if you have a listen, it does make sense and it's not completely random. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we never do random here, but we do do beyond parking, don't we? We do, don't we? Yeah. So um, without further ado, shall we listen to the podcast? Let's go there. Hi, Alex. Um, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, let's start off with you telling us a little bit about what interested you in automated vehicles and where it all started. Well, um, well, thank you for having me, first of all. It's extremely nice to, to chat about this. Um, my situation, I'm a barrister at Temple Garden Chambers and my work involves almost entirely road transport work in in one shape or form and that spans from uh, dealing with road traffic accidents involving serious personal injury quite a lot of which uh, involve unfortunately brain injury so there's quite a lot of neuroscience uh, in my work I also I've done a lot of work for insurers over the years in various fields particularly counter fraud and I think it's those two things, the, the neuroscience and the counter-fraud, uh, which have involved over the years more and more electronic evidence, more and more digital evidence. I, I think those two areas have been going actively in my mind for, for quite some years. Um, I've always been sort of very interested in, in cars. My, my family background is, is quite car dominated. My granddad worked in the motor factories in Birmingham all his life. So they're all, and when he retired, he had a, his dream job delivering high performance cars 
from the Midlands uh, down to London. So occasionally he'd turn up on our road, which was quite close to the M1, driving a Ferrari or something like this. So, so I've had that sort of uh, petrol head aspect in my upbringing. I'm very interested in transport as well. I'm a cyclist and uh, a driver and uh, and fairly recently an electric car driver as well, which is a real change in habits. So all of those things were sort of buzzing around my head. And then in 2015, 2016, the uh, UK government um, under the coalition launched the Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles, which is a specialised department in uh, the Department of Transport. And at that point, uh, driverless law really started to kick off and what eventually became the Automated and Electric Vehicles Act 2018 uh, went through Parliament as uh, various sorts of bills. It throws up all sorts of interesting questions, not least uh, the automation of what we have generally understood to be a human function, which is driving a car. So, it, yeah, there are all those ideas. And as a litigator and as a trial lawyer, uh, I just found them fascinating. So I started writing articles, which became books. And I'm now on the third book. Thanks, Alex. It's always fascinating to see how people got into the sector. It's always really different to what you'd expect. So if you would like to have a read of Alex's book, which is a practical guide to the law of driverless cars, we'll put a link in the bio below, or you can uh, have a look for it on Amazon. So getting back to the act, it's obviously different to road traffic law. Could you explain a bit about how it's different? The new thing it does in British law is it introduces an element of strict liability. And that was really the major debate when uh, the Act was going through Parliament in its various forms, because we've always had uh, a system of liability in this country which is based on negligence, uh, based on reasonable foreseeability and and all of these uh, factors about human behaviour. But of course, that doesn't really apply to an automated vehicle uh, whenever these vehicles are fully driverless or nearly fully driverless. And so you have to bring in a different system. There was a lot of debate about how to do that. One theory was to bring in product liability type of laws which uh, require proof of a defect, but then once a defect is proven, that's it, and the action is against the manufacturer. But that was going to be very expensive and very cumbersome for claimants, very difficult for them to mount claims. So what the Act did is it fused a couple of ideas um, one, it borrowed from European law, which is the idea of uh, being able to bring an action directly against the motor insurer, which in fact we've had in British law uh, for some years because of European law. Um, the, the second thing it did is that it objectively made the behaviour of the automated vehicle the test. And the test it made is if an automated vehicle at least partly contributes to an accident, partly causes an accident, that's enough to uh, sue the insurer directly. But you then have questions about were there any other causes? Was there another vehicle that caused it or did the negligence of the, the human driver of the automated vehicle play a part? So it's not without its complexities but it does something new. It's not yet in force because the vehicles haven't arrived yet, 
And this is the burning question at the moment because the vehicle tech is increasing at such a fast rate at the moment that the question for the Secretary of State for Transport is when he brings this act in and which feature, which driving system will be the trigger that brings the act in. And that's the question that he's grappling with at the moment. Thank you, Alex. And I, I think that brings me on to the second part of my question. Tell us a bit about connected vehicles as they exist now and where do they fit within a scale or a framework that the legislation set out? The, it's an easier question to answer today than it was a few years ago, actually, because um, one of the problems a few years ago particularly was actually knowing what state of tech the manufacturers had. And part of the reason for that, obviously, was commercial sensitivity. So uh, manufacturers would describe functions that they had, but which weren't yet released, or would describe functions that were in a vehicle, not by reference to industry standards, but in a, in a sort of descriptive, more marketing type of way. I say industry standards because actually the closest we have at the moment uh, to a scheme of uh, categorising these vehicles is the American Society of Automotive Engineers system. Now, the SAE, as, as it's referred to, is an organisation that was founded in, in the early 1900s by smaller groups of motor manufacturers in the US. And what they were trying to do was, was they were trying to bring in universal standards for motor car parts so that really they could make their industry more efficient. And that was the whole idea of the SAE. And in, in fact, it, it came into being as the US motor industry was growing and as Ford was releasing the Model N and the Model T. Um, on our side of the Atlantic, a similar thing was happening because what became the BSI was founded a few years prior to that. Um, so we have these industry standards and BSI now is very involved in, in writing a very great deal of standards for connected and autonomous vehicles. Now, a point that we should make at the outset is, is that our law does not refer explicitly to the SAE levels. Uh, the SAE levels are six levels of automation. It, there's a bit of a trap there. It sometimes looks like they're five, but they're six because they go from zero to five. And uh, there's a lot of detail in them, but the, the essential feature is that if you were to buy a brand new vehicle now that was either a hybrid, a petrol electric hybrid or fully electric, it would probably be either at SAE level two or possibly even going into SAE level three. Now, I'll just summarize those briefly. If you think about the SAE levels as being naught, one, two, and then three, four, five, three is where robot driving starts to come in. And so the level three is essentially a situation where a driver can take their hands off the wheel for a period of time, they still have to supervise the system, 
but the system will drive itself. And an example of a level three feature is a feature that's much debated at the moment, which is, pro which is on the cusp of uh, becoming more widely available. And that's the automated lane keeping system, which is sometimes referred to as ALKS or as traffic jam chauffeur. And it, it, it's a system that's designed as traffic jam chauffeur suggests to drive the car and be able to change lanes, but at slow speeds. Um, now, the question about that uh, uh, system has legal consequences, which I'll come to in a moment. Levels four and five, the best way to think about this is that level five is fully driverless. Now, that's the future car. It does not exist yet. Um, but that's the car that does not need a driver at all. That's the car that a human can get into and the car will completely drive itself. So query whether a steering wheel would even be necessary. Level four is the car between level three and level five, obviously. That's the car that is very nearly driverless. It still needs some residual human supervision, but for most part, it can drive itself. But level three is where we are now. The legal difficulty is, and it's a real conundrum because you can tell from my description that there's a real mixture of combinations between fully driverless and where we are now. The, the question is, uh, when should the law be activated to bring in this direct action against the insurer, this strict liability, on the basis that the car is now sufficiently automated? That, that that should fairly be the result. And that's the subject of a big debate, whether the act should be brought in, whether the strict liability should be brought in as soon as traffic jam chauffeur is rolled out, which it is being. We could see the law being tested in, in reality pretty soon in, in that respect. Yeah. So the next thing will be green light for the act, whenever that is, and then you will start seeing test cases. Thanks for, for the clarification. So... The legal framework is there. It could be tested soon. In the parking sector, the thing that is in existence already in one shape or form is automated valley parking. So you have a well-connected vehicle, probably level two or three, I'd imagine, um, or, or something that's quite bespoke. Um, and a car park operator who has a car park with sensors and various other technology so that you can get out of your car at the car park and it drives itself to an empty bay. This is what you know. What is in the uh, you know very near future for the parking sector? How does that interact with the legislation? Where is the car park operator in that legal framework? What 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 do our members really need to be thinking about at the moment? Well, it, it, there are many areas of law that can be affected by that. I mean, I approach this from the perspective of a liability lawyer, a, a, a litigator. I think the first thing to recognise about the law where it stands is that at the moment we have conventional law that's based on negligence. Um, the Highway Code has been amended to take into account uh, what we would call advanced driver assistance systems, such as remote parking. Um, one thing that has struck me, though, uh, both in terms of somebody who's writing about the detail uh, of these uh, cases in these vehicles 
and also as somebody who, who, who drives a, a fairly advanced vehicle, it is one really has to be on top of the, the, the details of, of what the system offers. The highway code, which I mentioned a moment ago, makes it very clear that the responsibility for using automated parking and smart summon systems always remains the drivers. Um, that's an important point, and I, I, I can't see that shifting until the technology has reached such a level of reliability uh, that a different approach is justified. The second point is that when you look at the functions of these systems, first of all, there are several different types of parking systems. I, you know, before our talk, I was reminding myself because I found myself reading a lot of these manuals for vehicles. So I was reminding myself of one in which there are three types of parking systems. Interestingly, the manual that I was reading made the point that these are all beta systems at the moment. So these are all incomplete systems, to, to paraphrase. Um, secondly, the nature of the tech alters according to which system you're using. And I think in some cases that can depend upon which software you have bought for the vehicle because these systems are being sold in packages. So the basic auto park, as I understand it, which tends to be only for use in a sort of parallel parking situation on the street, rather than going into a building, um, that, that's an ultrasound system usually. The next grades up tend to use several technologies in the car, so ultrasound and GPS, for example, are two of them, as well as cameras. On, on the cars. So they're engaging more of the automated driving uh, systems. And the very smartest system, which is drive it into a building some distance away from the driver, uses all of those systems and one assumes better software. The manuals don't tell you precisely what the mechanics are, but, but you can see what it is. So there are probably neural nets and forms of machine learning being operated there. But what is common about all the descriptions of these systems in manuals is the number of warnings in the manuals about the situations in which those systems are not workable. And some of the exceptions are quite striking from a practical perspective. For example, if there's anything that might interfere with the ultrasound. So, you know, if somebody's using a dog whistle or something else, high frequencies, well, that could interfere with it. Secondly, there, you know, there's mention of it'll only, sometimes you see it'll only move up, work on smooth surfaces, or it won't work where there's a curbstone. Well, I, I struggle to think of any car park I've ever been in that has no curbstones. So, um, so they're all, they're, I, I think we have to start from the practical. But also the manuals say precisely what the highway code says. It, it's, it's ultimately a matter for the driver. And some of the manuals say that the driver has to keep line of sight to the vehicle. So I, I think the first question is really a factual question. And we get into questions of risk assessment, you know, fairly familiar concepts. Are these devices suitable for use in your premises? 
And I think that's something that's, that's yet to be confirmed. I, mean, I, I, do, I do think that the way the Department of Transport and Centre for Connected and Autonomous Vehicles and BSI and all, all the many others in, involved in regulating this area, I think have done a really very, very good job because in the first place, they've seen this area coming from quite some time ago. So they've had the time to put resources and thought into it. And it does take a lot of thought and a lot of this sort of practical thinking. So they're ahead of this. So we don't have a highway code, which I think would have been more worrying, that says, no, it's fine, go out and use these things and don't worry. That would have been a much more worrying position. I think we're going at the right pace. But I think from, a, from your perspective, it's a matter of actually acquainting yourself with these vehicles, which by and large actually means driving them, because the habits are quite different. Yes. And so you've, um, you've given a great overview of, of where the liability and, and the issues are with the driver of, of, the, uh, of the car. And, and a car park operator will have infrastructure in his car park that enables this to happen in the, uh, you know, example where you leave your car and it drives a distance. So presumably um, the concept of reading manuals and knowing that everything's working according to spec is also true for the operator. Are there any other aspects of liability that they would need to consider? Well, whenever you talk about connected and autonomous vehicles, and I should just say autonomous is essentially a, a synonym for automated. Yeah. The, 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 the reason the word automated has come in is because it's the word that the act uses for autonomous. And I, I think it's really a point about plainness of language and trying to fuse it into a body of law that in many cases precedes the Second World War. Um, and in, in the Contributory Negligence Act, uh, it coincides with the end of the Second World War. So that's just a note on the language. Um, whenever you talk about these vehicles, the word data is not far behind. The reason for that, of course, is that modern mo mobile communications technology, Wi-Fi technology, the fibre optic cables that enable it, all function on data and, and one could even go as far as saying that the fuel of modern devices including mobile phones tablets laptops and now cars is is data it's what they i mean it's not what they literally run on but it's how a lot of these functions will perform and of course we there, there are two conflicting ideas that because on the one hand so many of our global businesses, the Amazons, the Facebooks, Twitters, etc., have really grown on the basis of consumption of data and use of data and monetization of, of data. So that thought commercially, I think, is in everyone's head. Of course, legally, what has happened, um, which I think can only be a good thing, is that laws have come in most notably the General Data Protection Regulation 2016 from the EU, which was enacted in May 2018 here in the Data Protection Act 2018, which was the most recent Data Protection Act. Um, that in combination with the Human Rights Act uh, provides a right to privacy. And that is becoming more and more important because we are just starting to get cases before the courts about absorption of mass data and privacy issues. And in particular, there's a case about automated facial recognition uh, being used by, by a police force. 
to photograph a crowd and within that crowd to identify suspects. Now, of course, that's a public function. But I think one thing that everybody has to be very conscious of, certainly in this country, is the data security provisions of those laws and the privacy provisions of uh, the Human Rights Act. And again, one has to go back to practicalities. This, this, what I've just said all sounds quite grand and quite abstract. And this is why I always try to adopt an approach of thinking about what is the actual machine? You know, how do we use this technology? What do we do with these machines in our day-to-day lives? Driving an electric vehicle, driving a connected vehicle forces some changes of habits. Of course, one of the changes of habits is you get used to when it needs charging and you start thinking about the mileage of your journeys more often. It, I mean, that's not difficult because it has a little bar rather like your mobile phone that tells you how much battery you've got and it gives you warnings and the rest of it. But one of the other major changes is software updating because these vehicles are much more like a computer than they are a car. And so fairly regularly, they need to update their software. And that tends to happen either by speaking to your household Wi-Fi or over the air. Um, more often than not, it has to be Wi-Fi because of the size of the, size of the update. Um, now, that raises some questions for car parking operators. You know, if, if they are, if you're operating a long-term car park at an airport, at a railway station, or so, uh, uh, near, near, near someone's place of work inside a city, Do you start operating or offering the ability to update car software? But if you do that, you have to be conscious of the legal uh, landscape as a whole. And one important thing to bear in mind is the failure to buy uh, a user of a vehicle to update their car with a critical with a safety critical software update could lead to their insurance being avoided. In which point, in which case, if they were relying upon somebody else to provide the, wise, the, the means of updating, they 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 might have a dispute. Yeah, I was just thinking that that actually um, there's there's lots of layers of who could be responsible, and like you say, if the Wi-Fi goes down and you've agreed to offer a service of updating a car suddenly are are you as the wi-fi provider or the operator of a car park or the operator of a hotel if it happens to be there or something are you then responsible for it um yeah yeah it's not just in cars the the law comes in because for example the law about implied terms or usual terms in consumer contracts has changed quite recently in 2015 to include uh, digital services, for example. So, they, I mean, this is one of the fascinating things about, you know, having been writing about this area for so long and writing about it again, that the circumstances change, tech changes, and of course the law at large changes. And sometimes the law at large is changing for completely different reasons to cars. 
But the thing that really strikes me and has struck me over the last several years is just how much the character of cars as a as an object with legal consequences has changed. They have changed from being an object that generates legal consequences mainly because they are large, heavy objects that travel fast, to being an object that changes things because they are not only fast-moving objects, but they are also objects that are receiving and sending data whose equipment is changing because of software. I mean, that's remarkable. That's a complete change. That's the equivalent of a conventional car, a petrol-driven vehicle that you would usually take in for service. That's the equivalent of the engine changing into something else overnight as it's parked outside your house. And that really is remarkable. And so, you know, our habits are shifting. I I, I think we're, we're in what I think of as a sort of smartphone moment, actually. I mean, my children are always horrified by this, but I, I and my wife say to them, we remember, you know, when you could, we remember the year when you went on a tube train and one, or a train anywhere, and, and, and one week people didn't have smartphones and the next week they did. And we remember that moment. And I think we're in, I think we're in a similar time for these sorts of vehicles because the tech is the tech is rising the automotive industry is being so disrupted it is similar to smartphones in the sense that they it's almost like a critical mass actually you need everyone to to use it and the same with autonomous vehicles if you have 100 vehicles on a particular stretch of road and there's a there's one or two it's going to be challenging for for everyone navigating it whereas if 99 of those cars are autonomous then it or 100 then it becomes easier to manage the roads in a way it is I mean, the question of mixed fleet is really interesting and i i the one can't really talk about this area without making crystal ball type predictions and comments uh, at some stage i was <laughs> I've, I've just been writing a chapter of my new book and i came across a a wonderful law which i'd never seen before which is in a very early highways act in the 19th century um and i was just going through the act and i spotted this section which said that the the owner of every wagon every horse-drawn wagon had to have their name painted on the side and that's registration numbers <laughs> that's registration plates comes out of that and you think wow this is and then you go through the history and particularly in the 19th century the extent to which you very suddenly have and this is something completely alien to us essentially cars early cars looking very little like cars but cars that are powered by steam on the roads there, there, was a, there were decades when steam vehicles were a thing. And then you have this period where actually electric motors and the internal combustion engine are in competition. And then suddenly the internal combustion engine becomes the dominant technology. And there are various theories for this, but I think it's not unconnected with the fact that 
in America, they struck oil in Texas. And then suddenly petrol becomes the fuel. And then the speed with which the automobile takes over is extraordinary. I think we're in that kind of moment, potentially. It just occurred to me when you were talking about mixed fleet and mentioned that the owner of a wagon needed to put their name on the car. That actually, that's something that technically with roads, unless you're on a motorway, which is just for motor vehicles, all other roads, any other moving thing can go on it, including horse-drawn carriages. And, yeah, I agree. And that it's obviously doesn't regularly happen, but legally you can. And that's... that. So actually this takeover of autonomous vehicles that we were just talking about is still going to have to navigate other vehicles. And like you were saying, you enjoy bike riding, as do I, and pedestrians on the pavement crossing the road. Um, a lot of people don't cross at the right place. And it's, there's a lot of different things to kind of navigate. Yeah, I, I, actually, I think that's absolutely right, Joe. In the, the, I, I think actually the horse is the test of it as you say, because it, it's something I've thought in, in the past. It, it, there is motorways apart. There is, you could come across a horse anywhere. Mounted police, you will see in very many places. I simply do not foresee a future at any time in which every vehicle is automated, because it just doesn't seem to me that that would reflect the reality of human behaviour. It, it, it just doesn't seem likely and this is a point that's been uh, considered in great depth by the law commission in its reports on uh, safety of automated vehicles and mobility as a service and and in its ongoing research whether you end up with a model that has some variety of automated transport everywhere or whether you have a model that becomes more zoned I think the reality is that it, it's probably going to be a real jigsaw of, of, of colours and, and, and varieties of, of transport. I think it's going to be a mixed bag. What, what will happen with connected tech is I think you'll get camera tech, which it, you know sensors on these vehicles operate in a number of different ways, you know, from sound, from, uh, from images, you know, GPS is far less precise. Uh, you know, radar, lasers, all sorts of stuff. Those systems will get more and more sophisticated and their ability to feed data will become more and more sophisticated. The real logistical problem, I think, is the amount of data because the storage and processing, particularly storage of, of data, is going to be a real practical issue. And again, this sort of comes back to the law. So, I mean, I'm often asked the question, well, how do we get to the data? If, uh, if there's an accident. I mean, it seems to me that if the visual data is on a USB drive, then that ought to be relatively straightforward to get because in most cases, the person who bought that USB drive will be the driver. <laughs> and to get it only involves unplugging it and, uh, and, and, you know, and, 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 and downloading the information. Um, in terms of what speed the car was doing and its location and its braking and all of this, that is, that's likely to be a tougher question. You almost, it, depends, it depends if the manufacturer is the defendant yeah. or is somebody else. I'm just thinking you almost need like an equivalent of like 
and I don't know much about how how aeroplane accident systems work but the the black box you almost need an equivalent of a kind of agreement that there's a black box type thing in a car and that is automatically given to whoever needs it if there is a claim regardless of who own who officially owns the data well you've you've put your finger on it because this there is the black box as it were in these cars but but of course it's uh, I think there are two there are two issues. There is a very uh, open conversation and you know a known conversation, particularly uh, involving insurers, as to who has access to that data. And the Association of British Insurers has been quite open in 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 saying this is a big issue. This we do precisely as you say, Joey need need to have rules and an understanding about accessibility to data. There's another practical problem, though, which is in the nature of the data itself. Because particularly if you get into neural nets, which is a particular form of machine learning, which, just to simplify it, I mean, it's artificial intelligence. That's sometimes a bit of a misleading phrase. It sounds a bit magical. But in reality, it is just a very, very layered sophisticated computer program uh, which allows uh, a machine to learn information by inference that it hasn't been directly programmed with. The difficulty with that sort of function as I understand it is that it is something called opacity which is that it's quite difficult if not impossible to reconstruct why the program did something. And quite a good illustration of this, and I should also say, and a great movie, is uh, the film Alpha Go, which I would recommend to anybody. I think it's on YouTube. It should be on YouTube because Google own, own both companies. <laughs> but um, uh, It's the story of how uh, DeepMind's uh, computer beat uh, a leading Go player. And Go, as you probably know, is a strategy board game uh, with many, many times the possible moves of chess. In fact, almost impossibly impossible to comprehend combinations of moves. Um, and I'm not going to spoil the film. All I would say is watch the film, well, watch AlphaGo. But from that film, you will see this point about opacity. Uh, we've had such a fascinating discussion today. Like, it's really, um, really great that you've joined us. Uh, and, you know, and it's a great time for our membership to, to be thinking about all these things as, as we're on the, the cusp of so much change. Is there anything that you'd like to add that we haven't covered in our questions? Anything that we need to be thinking about in the, uh, in the parking sector in the future? I, I, I think actually, I, I just come back to this point about actually experiencing the technology yourself um the more i go into the detail of the law and particularly the more you look at the history of law as it has for example reacted to the motor car and to all the technologies that the motor car uses um and so much of that development is over the last 20 years we're in a really uh, hot period for it um the more I look at those 
small aspects of laws, the more I realize that it's, it, it, it's law is completely rooted in how people actually use technologies and what their experience of them is. Um, there will be points that would never occur to me that I suspect will instantly occur to your members if they drive one of these vehicles. Um, I would encourage people to go and test drive them, actually. <laughs> I mean, candidly, I, I resisted uh, test driving one of these uh, for a while, particularly when they were very expensive. They're, quite, they're pretty expensive now. I mean, cars are very expensive objects, which is a whole other issue. But I resisted this for a while because I thought the moment I drive one of these, I'll just be so interested that I'll end up um, spending far too much money. So I held off, I held off for a while. <laughs> but there, there's no substitute for driving and, and just seeing the differences. And I think from your specialised area, your members would see aspects of this that would just appear to them immediately uh, through the practical experience in terms of the power source, in terms of the fuel, in terms of emissions, all of which are colossal problems. Um, the technology has a lot to recommend it, but it also changes our views and uh, it changes our experience. So I'd just say, get that day-to-day -day experience, go test drive one of these things. I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to putting that on expenses. <laughs> I, I don't know how far expenses would go, whether it would go. I'll leave that as an open question. You can get a test drive for free, surely. You can get a test drive for free. Yeah, How far you can push research beyond the test drive. <laughs> yes, we'd probably have to do a few plugs on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure as i said to have you on the podcast and um i'm sure our members will have further questions and we might probably be in touch with you for our many events that we put on virtually these days because i think your area of knowledge is so important at the moment well thank you so it's been an absolute delight thanks for for such a brilliant chat and and you know let's cross fingers and hope that we actually get to meet in real life <laughs> Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Bob. All right, bye-bye.